1: It's good to have everybody back with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigut. Um I think if you listen to the show regularly, you know that for much of the last week or more, we've devoted most of our time to talking about what's happening at the Georgia legislature. So many important bills that have uh, been debated there. Uh, the legislature finally ended Monday, as you all know, and uh, we've continued to report on what came out of the session. There will be more to come in the days ahead because there's always uh, surprises. We always find that things were done in the end hours of the session that we don't learn about until much later. And, of course, we'll continue to track those uh, possible surprises for you. And we'll be talking a lot about the campaigns that are really now fully underway with the legislature over in the weeks and months ahead. But today we're going to turn to looking at where we stand right now in Georgia, in the country, with coronavirus. And and I have to admit that one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to this show is I'm confused. I am really uncertain, as I suspect many people are, about the precautions I ought to be taking at this point and uh, whether the virus is um, surging in any way here, whether it's receded especially with the new sub-variant that um, has captured the attention of people because it seems to spread so rapidly. So we're going to talk about all that and more um, on the show today. And we're very happy to have back with us Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who is the Assistant uh, Executive Associate Dean for Emory at uh, Grady, and uh, is one of the leading experts um, on, on the epidemiology of the virus. Dr. Del Rio, thank you so much for coming back to join us today.
2: Uh, thank you for the invitation, Bill. Always fun to be with you.
1: Amber Schmidtke is uh, with us as well. Amber Schmidtke is the Division Chair of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at the University of St. Mary. But, Amber, what you've really become known for is you are just the supreme data cruncher when it comes to looking at the virus and how it has moved across this country. Um, Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks, Bill. I will be sure to add that to my CV, the queen of data crunching.
1: (laughs) Do you think that's a fair way of putting it?
0: Well, I'm flattered. Um, I've certainly tried to do my part. So thank you for um, saying so. (laughs)
1: Ellen Eldridge is with us. Uh, she's a senior healthcare reporter here at GPB News. Ellen, you've spent a lot of your time covering the virus in Georgia over really the last two years.
3: Yeah. Good morning. It's it's good to be back and, and among the panel of, of experts here. All right,
1: um, Dr. Del Rio, if if I can, let's start with a report from the ground. Um, Your work at Grady Hospital, on your various appearances on the show, you've talked to us about what you're seeing in your day-to-day work in the hospital. Uh, Just give us a a report right now on where things stand at Grady, um, how prevalent has the virus been there, compare it to, say, a year ago, whatever you want to do. Tell us a little about where things are right now.
2: Well, Bill, the number of patients that we currently have hospitalized with COVID at Grady is at an all time low. We are under 20 patients, and almost uh, none of them, just one, is in the ICU. And in addition to that, the number of people who are testing positive is also uh, fairly low. So all those are, are very good indicators at this point in time. What I would say, though, is that we continue to see the people that come in and, and get hospitalized. Are people that are not vaccinated or, or were partially vaccinated have only received one dose or have not been boosted. So I, and I'm, as you know, nationwide and here in Atlanta as well, the, the percent, the number of people who are getting vaccinated is, is really also at an all-time low. So as we talk about how do we prepare for the next surge when it's going to happen is get vaccinated if you haven't and get boosted if you haven't been boosted. That's the best way to prepare right now.
1: So let me follow up just briefly, again, talking about things on the ground. There must be a sense among all of you, your hospital and, of course, other hospitals across the state, of some relief that you are not seeing the crisis that has had you all working so many hours under such treacherous conditions uh, throughout a lot of the pandemic, yes?
2: Oh, without doubt. There's a huge sense of relief. There's a huge sense of of, of hope, and there's also so, people are 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 also very tired, and I think they're ready to move on and and go back to to doing what they normally do, which is you know we like to take care of, of patients, and we we like to take care of all sorts of diseases, and we know that many patients have foregone uh, care for other conditions, so we're we're way back then. In cancer screenings and mammographies and many other things so we want to go back to really providing population health and improving the health of the population in general and not just you know providing emergency uh, crisis care
1: well i i really say thank goodness uh that you're you're all getting some relief at this point from the very difficult situations that you found yourselves in throughout much of the pandemic Amber, you are the author of the COVID Digest, which really has become must-reading for many of us who want to follow the course of the virus. And I want to read just to you your own words from your most recent uh, uh, post from, it's March 26, it's you know, about a week or so old, but I think it hold, holds up pretty well. You start by saying, this week things are nearing historic lows on the COVID-19 front, As we look at data nationally, sort of echoing what Carlos Del Rio was saying about what's happening at his hospital nationwide, the seven day average for cases is lower than it has been in a long time, but still 173 percent higher than the previous low set on 21 June 2021. Hospitalizations are nearing the 2021 low, but remain 15% higher. The U.S. is still averaging 801 deaths per day, but that's a big improvement, considering that the U.S. averaged 1,000 deaths per day from August uh, 2021 to uh, March 2022. Um, So, Amber, uh, expand upon that for us, please.
0: Yeah, and I'll say that uh, those data are, like you said, are already a week old. We have reached um, a low point um, when it comes to hospitalizations since we started gathering these data, Um, and so that's really encouraging. It it reflects what Dr. Del Rio is seeing on the ground at Grady. Um, It's it's good to know that we're seeing that nation or national nationally. I think that um, you know we are in a good place uh, in Georgia in particular, um, and we're seeing in many country or many parts of the country that we are at. That low space. Um, We are starting to see an uptick in cases in wastewater surveillance for the Northeast Corridor of the United States, and so that's an area that we want to keep an eye on. Um, But you know, it's a it's a helpful thing to keep uh, an eye on as we look at other parts of the country as well. Um, So we are in a better place than we have been in a long time, and I think that provides a necessary respite for our healthcare workers. Um, But I think it would be naive to assume that we're done. Um, I think that we need to. Um, be vigilant. I think we need to still work on community protections um, to try to especially look out for those who are immunocompromised and those with children under the age of five um, who are not yet eligible to be vaccinated. Um, So again, I, I don't think that the danger has completely passed. I don't think the pandemic is over by any means, but we are definitely in a good spot right now.
1: So I want to get into in a few minutes some of the I think interesting factors that may be leading uh, uh, leading us to have a low number of cases. But before we do, Ellen Eldridge, I want to give you a chance to jump in and ask any questions you might
3: have. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, obviously, we're not done with the pandemic as much as we all want to be, and I think the fear that we all had in initially about you know what's unknown about COVID is is this going to you know kill my whole family that that kind of thing that. Now it's like that frustration has turned into a wonder about, you know, new variants or are we going to have to return to masking or shutting businesses down? Is is there going to be a new deadly variant that is going to make everything worse again? So, you know, I just wanted to kind of hear from Carlos and Amber what you think that sense of frustration is coming from. Is it is it just a sense of uncertainty now and we just don't know what to do and we just want to ignore it?
1: Dr. Del Rio.
2: Well, you know, I mean, you know, I think that you know every time we try to predict what's going to happen with this pandemic, it doesn't work, and I think every time the conditions change right and so I think there's a couple of things right now that that are important while the virus is evolving, we have yet to see a variant that has evolved to the point of of causing uh you know evading the immune the immunity provided by vaccines or by prior infection. To the extent of of causing severe hospitalization, severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So, and we also have gone a lot of people infected. I tell people that you know the bad news is we had a huge Omicron surge. The good news is we had a huge Omicron surge. So at least for mm. a, for a period of time, you know, 45, 50 percent of Americans contracted Omicron during the last wave. So a lot of people are are, are immune either because of vaccination or prior infection. And if you add those two together, maybe somewhere around 75. 73-75% of the U.S. population has immunity. As Amber says, that still leaves about 25% that don't have any protection either But they're either because they've never been vaccinated, they've never been infected, or they're not eligible for vaccines or they're immunocompromised. I worry about those individuals. I think for the rest of us, if you've been vaccinated and boosted, you can pretty much go on with your life. I think you will get – you may get infected. This virus, ba 2 is highly transmissible. But – we also have to remember we have treatments now that we didn't have before, and I think the availability of, of oral therapy really dramatically changes the risk perception that people have. I think it changes very, very clearly. If you say, well, I'm you know, 70 years old, supposedly. I'm, I'm 62, but I was, well, I was 70 years old, and I got infected, and I started myself, and you know was able to get tested and start in Paxlover right away, I would be fine. So do I need to 100% avoid getting infected? Probably not. You probably can go on and, and do most of your life normally for the time being.
1: Um, let me ask you about Paxlovid because you mentioned it here. Um, tell tell us a little bit about. Uh, uh, um, we haven't talked about it on this show. What is that drug, and why is it important right now? And how widely available is it?
2: So, Bill, it's uh, you know we're uh, over the past couple months, uh, new therapies, uh, oral therapies for outpatient care of COVID have evolved. Early in the pandemic, we focused so much on taking care of the critically ill that people that had the eighty percent of people who get infected and don't get critically ill who have mild disease, we said, go home, right? And then they would go home and infect other people, and some of those will get sick and end up in the hospital. Now we're moving uh, more of our care, more of our therapies, to the outpatient setting, to the non-hospitalized patient, whether it's with monoclonal antibodies, whether it's with oral therapies. And there are several drugs. Uh, certainly Paxlovid is one of them. Molnupiravir is another one. There are other drugs that are being used. And, and Paxlovid is really effective. Again, the clinical trial with this, with this drug showed an 88% decrease in the risk of severe disease, hospitalization, or death in people that were treated with the drug compared to placebo. Now, I would say that they were very high-risk individuals. They were unvaccinated. And, and, and that changes, right? If you have somebody who's not high-risk and who is uh, who's vaccinated, the benefit of the drug may not be as much as in those that are high-risk. But if you're a high-risk individual and you're and you're not vaccinated, that's an option. The problem with Paxlovid is, is that it has a lot of drug drug interactions. So, some of the people that will need it the most, for example, transplant patients, uh, are not necessarily eligible to get it. So, for those individuals, there's another monoclonal antibody called Ebusheld, which can be given as a, as a sort of a preventative infusion every four to six months. And if you do that, you again also offer significant protection. Paxlovid, Ebusheld, a lot of those drugs had very low availability. It's getting better. There's a government website. You can go and find availability of the drugs. It really is good. It tells you down to the state. It tells you which pharmacies have what. And I would say while the availability is not optimal right now, it's much better. And, you know, the, I, would, I have treated in the past several weeks about a dozen patients. I've had no problem getting their prescriptions filled.
1: All right. Um, Amber, I, I, I want to ask you, I know that we, we again, I said it at the very beginning of the show, that uh, the sub-variant, this uh, BA2 sub-variant, has really, really moved across Great Britain in in major numbers. At least one out of 20 uh, Brits have uh, been tested positive with that sub-variant. It hasn't hit us in the same way here in the United States, and there are many people who have been concerned that it would. You have some thoughts about why we may not be seeing the the surge that uh, we've seen in Great Britain.
0: Yeah, so um, the A. two variant makes up uh, between 68 and 76% of the strains that are being identified in the United States. Um, If we look regionally in the south, um, you know, the the proportion there is about two-thirds of the strains being tested. If we look in the northeast corridor, like I said earlier, it's even greater. And that is where we're starting to see that uptick in cases. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to why are we not seeing the hospitalizations and case rise in the United States, like we are seeing in Canada and in the United Kingdom. And some of that may come down to the fact that um, a large proportion of our population has moved on from the pandemic. Even if they have symptoms, they won't go get a test. Um, And those who are asymptomatic still probably won't get a test. Um, and the reality is that testing is harder to find now. Uh, we have testing centers that have closed down. The federal government no longer pays for COVID testing for the uninsured. Um, and states like Georgia still don't have Medicaid expansion. So we have a problem where um, the, the people who may need testing most are going to have a harder time accessing it. Um, and certainly in a way that's affordable for them. And so what you may have is, is a low-lying level of disease that starts to build and we may not see it. Um, until, we, until we start to see it affect people who are wealthy enough to pay for a test or wealthy enough to have insurance. And so those would be the cases that we then see, unless it's people that come straight to the ER and are, are looking for a test in that way. Um, so that is the thing. But I want to come back to something that uh, you know, Carlos hopefully pointed out. We do have a lot of immunity in this country um, mediated through either the vaccine or through natural infection, but it has come at a very heavy toll. Um, we are approaching a million dead Americans as a result of that, so while you know it may seem hopeful to know that 75% of um, the U.S. population has some level of immunity to this disease, we've, we lost a lot of people that we didn't need to lose in order to get there. Um, and while it is comforting to know that we have a lot of therapies that can help us with dealing with this pandemic moving forward, the challenge is that a lot of those require that you start that treatment right away. Um, very soon after the start of symptoms. And if we don't have robust access to testing, how do people access that care in a timely manner that can help them?
1: Um, Ellen, let's not forget that COVID is still here in the state of Georgia. I was just looking at the Georgia DPH website a couple of minutes ago. In the last two weeks, we have had 17,414 new cases of COVID. I, I, I think I'm going to see if I can grab real quickly the confirmed deaths. Um, uh, we, we've had a total of 31,000 plus uh, confirmed deaths, uh, but I don't see it right now. Let me see if I can pull it up very quickly for uh, the last couple of weeks. I don't have those numbers in front of us, but me, but clearly people are still unfortunately dying from COVID here.
3: Yeah, and not only are people continuing to die and experience severe disease from COVID, especially the people who haven't been vaccinated or have no, no natural immunity to it, but a, a lot of people now are wanting to know about a possible cure or what they should do about long COVID. Those, those symptoms like chronic fatigue, shortness of breath, even anxiety and depression that people are experiencing long after their body has cleared the virus. Uh, I know. Yesterday, the Biden administration just directed the Department of Health and Human Services to create an interagency national research action plan to to look at long COVID, and it, it's this is clearly something that's going to continue affecting the population, even if it's a smaller population as time goes on. Um, so, so I just, you know, again, I, I want to know more about the role of inflammation in the body. I, I had spoken with a cardiologist at Northside back in in like the fall of 2020, and he told me that with any kind of viral infection, inflammation is common. So what do we know about the role of inflammation and and how this could be kind of playing in with these long COVID symptoms?
1: Dr. Well, Del Rio, let's, I, let's,
2: let's first start ahead. talking about long COVID. I think, you know, I, I appreciate the Biden administration, President Biden making this directive, but you know, maybe he's not informed. I mean, the NIH already has started a very huge uh, research effort around long COVID. It's called, uh, it's called the Recover Cohort. And in fact, here in Atlanta, we are one of the sites for the Recover Cohort, and we're actively enrolling into this. This is going to be a very, very important uh, cohort across the nation with pediatric and adult patients, really trying to understand not only long COVID and its effect, but actually testing therapies for long COVID. So, the recovered cohort is up and running as, a, as a, a wonderful effort that is that is really going to allow us to really uh, understand this disease and treat this disease more effectively. I agree with you; inflammation may play a role, but it's also uh, it's also uh, uh, you know the virus could be playing a role, and we, there are also many other factors that could be playing a role, and we need to understand that. One of the things that it also appears to be increasingly clear is that vaccination prevents you from getting long COVID in a significant way. It significantly decreases your risk. So if you've been vaccinated, and if you get, you know, breakthrough infection, your risk of getting long COVID is much lower than if you have not been vaccinated. So, again, another reason to get vaccinated is to prevent long COVID. Uh, you may say, well, I don't care if I get COVID. I'm 25 years old. I really don't care if I get COVID. Nothing's it's going to happen to me. Yeah, but if you get long COVID, that's going to be detrimental. So, again, vaccination is a way to prevent that. But I want to encourage people to go and look at, at the recover. It's called recoveredcovid.org. That is a big, you know, NIH effort with millions of dollars to try to understand this disease. And there's enrollment sites throughout the nation. Here in Atlanta, we have one. And you, if you're interested, if you have long COVID and you're interested in enrolling, uh, please, please come uh, find us and, and enroll into the study.
1: Dr. Del Rio, um, help us understand what long COVID is in the sense that what, what are we, what, what do, I, I think there are a variety of symptoms that various people might be uh, experiencing, but in, in general, how does long COVID uh, affect uh, individuals who have it?
2: So, Bill, uh, you know, the data suggests that about 10 to 15 percent of people who have COVID and whether they have mild disease or, or, or severe disease, but about 10 to 15 percent of people go on to develop uh, this long COVID symptoms, which include basically, is continue having symptoms, uh, also not recovering your health, about, you know, about a month to two to six weeks after you recovered from COVID. And those symptoms could be in different places. The most common things are fatigue. Uh, some people say, you know, I feel like a brain fog, like I, I cannot concentrate. Uh, but you can have med- multiple organ involvement. It can impact your car- heart. It can impact your lungs. It can impact your, your brain. It can impact your kidneys. It can even impact uh, your your pancreas. We have seen Diabetes is not only a risk factor for long COVID, but actually people that, that recover from COVID go on to, to develop diabetes that they didn't have before. So at the end of the day, it's a, it's, a, it's a variety of different diseases. And one of the things that we're trying to do for recover is really trying to come up with a, with a case definition. What is long COVID? Because, you know, what we also have found in other places, there's a study, for example, from, from France, if I recall, in which people came in, they tested, you know, they said, oh, you have long COVID, but when they studied them, they had cancer or they had something else. So don't assume that all your symptoms are long COVID. I just recently saw a patient that, you know, everybody thought, oh, he has long COVID symptoms, and he really had an infection that needed to be treated and needed to have surgery for. So at the end of the day, we need to be careful that we don't overcall any symptoms that somebody who previously had COVID had and just dismiss them as long COVID.
1: Uh, Amber, have, 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 are you able to capture is there a way to capture data about the number of long COVID cases out there or are those more amorphous because they're not reported in a specific way?
0: Yeah, that's the real challenge with long COVID is that we don't have good data on how many people are impacted. Um, We have some limited studies um, that have tried to examine that um, to look at, um, you know, health outcomes six months after infection, 12 months after infection, um, that sort of thing. But we do not have a good public repository of information about who is impacted and how many are impacted and what other comorbidities might they have, like Dr. Del Rio mentioned. Um, so I think, you know, I was uh, excited to hear Ellen bring this up, that what's going on with the Biden administration. I am excited to hear about this government program because it's important to remember that, you know, this long COVID thing is a, is a, a problem that I don't know that we've paid enough attention to. And it's going to have far-reaching impacts beyond the health of that one individual, but also... Um, you know, this is something that's qualifying people for long-term disability. And, you know, if you're 25, like Dr. Del Rio said, and you don't think you need a vaccine, um, how do you pay rent if you're not going to be able to work for the mm. next six months to a year? Um, so it has important impacts on employment, on workforce development. Um, it, it's more than just the patient sitting in front of you. This has a broader impact on society at large.
1: Um Ellen, both Amber and Dr. Del Rio, of course, have have emphasized the importance of being vaccinated for a variety of reasons. Um, But look at the numbers here in Georgia. uh, We have still only had 63% of the people in this state that have had one dose of vaccine, and only 56% have been fully vaccinated. Um, And the numbers are even lower uh, when it comes to, uh, to having the full course of the vaccine and then an additional dose, a booster, is like 40%. Uh, so we still lag in this state dramatically. And although this show is not today about politics, and I don't want to drag people into a political conversation, but I will ask you about it, you know, it, it, we, have, we are suffering in part, because of politics in terms of vaccinations here
3: yeah definitely and you know as I mentioned before I think myself included everyone here we're, we're tired of of the pandemic we we desperately want to ignore it and then you know we see we see the news alerts we see the the push alerts on our phone the FDA has just authorized a, a second booster as you mentioned for you know people who are over 50 or 60 and people with with health problems, you know, so, so everybody's kind of wondering, oh, do I even really need this booster? And, and now it's not being paid for. So is it just something where the drug companies are trying to make money and I don't know what to believe anymore? And I know, you know, regardless of, of what the experts think about what's going on with the boosters, I know obviously with the flu, every year the vaccine, it needs to be tweaked a little because the, the virus itself keeps changing and there, there's a diminishing return when you just have the same vaccine over and over and over in the boosters. Uh, Morehouse School of Medicine is actually, right now, they're trying to recruit about 200 people for a clinical trial to look at the, the effects of these boosters, you know, the especially the mRNA boosters and how well that they are protecting people from the current variants and any, any that may come in the future. So, he, you know, again, I just think we have so much that we don't know already, um, but the, the studies are ongoing. We're, we're learning more, and, you know, people who can't get vaccinated because they don't have insurance, they don't have Medicaid, they can't get tested because, as Amber said, those, those sites are closing down. It's just going to be more and more apathy. I mean, what, what do you guys think?
0: I think we need to be really careful to when we have this murky data that we need to find a way to see through the fog. We need to find a proxy set of data that can help us to see because we do have this apathy problem, right? And so, um, you know, that's why I've been paying a lot of attention to wastewater surveillance. But the challenge there is that we're more than two years into this pandemic and we still don't have a robust network of wastewater surveillance sites. But so for the state of Georgia, there's only two counties that are reporting data to the CDC. They're DeKalb and Richmond counties. Um, but there's 159 counties in the state, and so we don't have a robust, uh, you know, canary in the coal mine to look at to know when, is, when are things starting to get hot again. Um, and I think that that's, that's going to be a challenge for us is that, you know, I don't want a situation where Carlos and his colleagues at the hospital are suddenly inundated with stuff and they had no warning. They didn't have the opportunity to call for travel nurses. They didn't have the, the ability to, you know, purchase additional supplies or get ready for that kind of impact. Um, so that's something that, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's keeping me up at night, but it's certainly something that I worry about um, in terms of maintaining that, that health care infrastructure um, for the next wave. You know, I think that when we Dr. talk about how um, – oh, sorry, go ahead, Bill.
1: No, no, go ahead, finish. I apologize.
0: I was just going to say that, you know, we're talking about how vaccinations are really low and we're kind of stuck in this place. I think that, you know, there's more that we can do for messaging that will really help with that. Um, you know, we've – on the one hand, we've got um, – I, you, you didn't want to bring politics into this, but, you know, like we've got the White House on the one hand trying to remind us that everything's fine and we're, we're moving on and you can take your masks off and that kind of stuff. And then it's harder to convince people if the pandemic is, quote, unquote, over as to why they need to get a vaccine. Why do they need a booster if they're also hearing from their government that the vaccine or that the, the pandemic is waning? We don't have to worry about this anymore. Um, it makes it harder for those of us that work in public health um, to get that message across.
1: Uh, no, I, just I to agree. make a point. I agree with Am- you. Uh, Go ahead, Doctor Del Rio. I
2: agree with you, Amber, and I think right now, what we truly have in our country is a lot of people who are confused. I mean, people are confused. Ooh. The message is confusing, uh, mm-hmm. and and quite frankly, that that creates uh, uh, distrust and that creates uh, a difficulty trying to to do public health messaging. And I think one of the one of the big lessons out of this pandemic really is that public health messaging has not been correct has not been appropriate has not been clear and and unfortunately, as a result of that it has there has been a void that has been uh, you know then filled with with misinformation and with the disinformation that has even confused things even even more and and the reality is that that shows like this bill hopefully will help people clear their 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 questions because people are confused. I mean, everybody's confused. My phone is exploding with people calling and asking, "Should I get a fourth dose? What should I get?" You know, I mean, I I could if I got a penny for every one of those texts, I would be very rich by now. So the reality is that <laughs> it we are all continuously answering these questions, and I tell people the answer I give you today may not be the answer I give you in a week. You know, things change, and that's also very hard. That this is this is an evolving pandemic. Every day we're learning something. And as a result of that, every day we're tweaking our message and we're changing what we tell people. And that's very hard for people to understand because, well, you told me this last week, how, why are you changing your message? Well, I'm not changing it. I'm changing it because I'm adjusting it to what the new data suggests. I mean, the data coming out of Israel on fourth doses makes me think very differently about them than if I didn't have that data.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. I have a lot of questions I want to ask our panel about when we come back. And by the way, save your notes to me when I said we didn't want to talk politics on this show. It isn't that I don't want to talk about it. I'm just not trying to drag this particular panel into the kind of political conversation that can get uh, uh, to feel like it's a partisan conversation. We talk about the politics of the pandemic all the time. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Ellen Eldridge, Amber Schmidtke, Dr. Carlos Del Rio on today's political rewind. We're talking about COVID for the first time in quite a while. All right, Dr. Del Rio, you set me up for the question I wanted to ask you. I'm 75 years old. As soon as FDA and CDC said, yep, people over whatever 50, I think or 60 can now get a second booster. I ran out, got my second booster. And yet I opened the New England Journal of Medicine last night and find out that, according to the study done in Israel, that uh, this second booster may have an efficacy of a month. Should I have gotten this booster? Should people like me get it, Dr. Del Rio?
2: Well, Bill, you know, it's a very good question. And again, the the question we need to ask ourselves is what— are the vaccines supposed to be doing. What are these vaccines? And I'll tell you that from being involved early on in the design of those trials, these vaccines were designed to prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and death. They were not designed to prevent infection. We found that they prevented infection, and we were very happy about it, but these vaccines were not designed to prevent infection. In fact, you know, Most vaccines for respiratory viruses are not very good at preventing infection. Think about, for example, the flu vaccine. I mean, they're only about 30, 40, at best, 50, 60 percent effective in preventing infection. Uh, What these vaccines do is they're very effective in preventing severe disease and death, and that has not changed uh, throughout the pandemic, even with Omicron. What has changed is their ability to prevent infection. And while early on they were very good at preventing infection, as the virus has evolved, the vaccines have not been that great in preventing infection, but they're still not bad. I mean, you know, a 30% preventive infection is not, is not anything to, 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 to sneeze about. The, uh, the study that you're quoting about, the study from Israel, you know, they looked at a lot of people who had been vaccinated, and what they found is that they, the, the risk of getting uh, severe disease, hospitalization, and death in people over the age of 60 decreased significantly. The numbers were low regardless, but they did decrease significantly in people that got that fourth dose. And that's the reason why you want to get a fourth dose. You want to even decrease even more. You know, somebody said your your 70, your 90-year-old grandma who's fully vaccinated is still at higher risk of dying than your five-year-old who's yet to be vaccinated. And by getting that fourth dose, what you're trying to do is decrease that risk because the biggest predictor of severe disease and death in this virus is age. So the older you get, the more likely you are to have a severe outcome. And that's the reason why you get a fourth dose. So people over the age of 60, my advice to you, people like you, absolutely get a fourth dose if you've gone four months or more after. But don't think that you're protected against infection. I mean, continue to think that infection can potentially happen. It's not a perfect protection. Now, I tell people also not to try to time it. You know, some people say, well, I'm going to wait until you know, I'm going to, this is going to go up. It's a little bit like trying to time the stock market. It just doesn't work. If you more than four to six months, get your booster. Now, if you're under the age of 60, if you're a 53-year-old individual who's healthy, athletic, no underlying conditions, doing just fine, I would say, wait, you don't really benefit from getting a fourth dose because it's not going to change that outcome significantly. So that's when you, again, have to make this decision of what is the right time to get vaccinated the biggest issue that I tell people over and over is the biggest, the booster I need is for those that haven't vaccinated to get vaccinated. If we can get our vaccination rates up, if we can get our booster rates up in those that have been vaccinated, we will all be better protected. And so what we need to do is really encourage people to get vaccinated. When people come and ask me about a booster, I say, yeah, but let's make sure that others around you are fully vaccinated. That's the number one thing we all need to do.
1: Amber?
0: um you know i uh i I think that yesterday somebody was asking me about this in fact and i you know on the one hand they're like do i wait until wastewater starts to show that in my area stuff is starting to increase and the reality is that we don't have like i said earlier we don't have enough robust data to be able to make that kind of estimate it's kind of like trying to jump into a double dutch jump rope kind of situation right or trying to jump into the stock market at just the right time like like carlos mentioned you know we want to we want to try to delay in a sense to make sure that we have optimum protection when the threat is greatest, but it's hard to predict when that is. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Carlos is correct that we would all be better served if we had higher vaccination rates in general. Um, But in some ways, uh, you know, we've been stalled for a long time and I'm not sure that we're going to see a real big jump in first time vaccinations. And so I think what we have a, a bigger responsibility to do is what kind of community level protections can we put in place in order to um, protect the most vulnerable, to protect those who have been disproportionately harmed, people or communities of color in particular, those who are um, below the poverty line, that sort of thing. And so I think we can do more on ventilation. We can do more on uh, making testing widely available and free. Um, So hopefully we see that come back. And there are other things that we can do too um i would love to see something where we have paid leave to be able to take time off from work so that people aren't working while they're sick um and brushing that off as something else just because they need to be able to make ends meet um there are a lot of lessons that could have come from this pandemic that we are not acting on and that's still a point of frustration for me ellen i want to give you a
1: chance to ellen jump in
3: hey yeah um you know politics i think and money are obviously closely related. And, you know, I understand that the, the government, the Congress, we only have so much. And and it seems to me, from what you said, you know, expanded wastewater testing, that would probably be a good place for investment, certainly paid leave. You know, I, I don't want the person serving me my, my birthday dinner at the restaurant to be working because they couldn't afford to take a day off and might have COVID, might not, you know. So, and, and Carlos, you mentioned before the break about, the importance of messaging in public health, so I think people, they no longer have the trust they once did in, in government agencies, you know, the CDC, the NIH, uh, even the, the World Health Organization, so what have we learned, and, and what would you like to see the next time a novel disease appears, you know, what, what should we carry forward from this experience? Well,
2: you know, there's a lot of, I mean, as Amber said, there's a lot of questions, a lot of things that uh, carry forward. I think, to me, one of the most critical ones is we need to understand and we need to, to finally ac- agree that health disparities are unacceptable. The most vulnerable have been severely impacted, uh, minorities, uh, the poor, and, you know, and we need to change that. If we don't change that, if we don't provide, I mean, the kind of herd immunity we need is, is really health equity. If we can provide health equity, we would be in a much better place confronting a pandemic. I think our enormous disparities play uh, negatively against everyone. Number two, so addressing, I mean, it's time to really have, you know, universal access to health care. We should not have health care. No longer should health care be a, 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 something that you, you, that some get and some don't. Uh, number two, I mean, the fact that somebody today has to say, well, I'm not going to get tested because I can't afford it, is simply unacceptable in this day and age in a, in a wealthy country like ours. Number two is we need to, we need to, to have uh, you know, paid leave. We need to make sure that people who are sick stay home and get, a, and get care. Number three, we need to, to ensure that we prioritize health. We have seen in this pandemic the importance of, of underlying conditions, obesity. Uh, diabetes, hypertension, so we need to address underlying diseases, you know chronic diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity as really public health issues, and finally, we need to address racism as a public health uh, problem because at the end of the day that 's really what 's driving a lot of the problems in our country so let 's think about the things we need to change and not go back to business as usual because going back to business as usual. I think will be our biggest uh, um, sort of missed opportunity. As far as public health agencies, I mean, I think we need—we really need better communication. We need transparency. We need truth, and we need, um, you know, the uh, ability to communicate at a level that people understand. And we need to really regain the trust of people. That's going to take some time. That's not going to be automatic. That's going to take some time. And it's going to really require to to think of public health in a very different way. Public health no longer is about, you know, providing, uh, you know, orders and dictums. Public health has to be about improving health in the community. And how do we get the community to say, look, public health is to me as important as the fire department is or as this is or as this service is. If we get public health to really be part of the community, then we dramatically change the role of public health.
1: That was a statement that I want to make sure we save and repeat down the line. Uh, Natalie Mendenhall and Sam bermas I think Carlos Del Rio just said something terribly important. And unfortunately, Ellen, before we take a break, we do not, as we look at what's happening with public health budgets in the state of Georgia nationally, when we look at how leaders are not, in fact, uh, taking seriously what this pandemic tells us, we need to be doing about a pandemic in the future. It's distressing that we don't seem to be learning lessons at this point.
3: Yeah, we're we're back to uh, me. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely, and and I think you know um, what what Carlos said about needing health equity. A lot of my health reporting for GPB lately has been not directly tied to COVID and the pandemic, but rather this, this public health problem of, of racism and, and health inequity. You know, as we've mentioned, Georgia is one of the dozen states that does not have expanded Medicaid. And I know even with the, the recently passed tax cut um, and you know, raises for state employees and, and teachers in Georgia – it's, it's still not what some experts were, were asking for in terms of expanded access to pay, paid leave and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, yeah, I agree.
1: Okay, Ellen Aldridge gets the last word on our second segment. We're going to come back with more in just a moment on Political Rewind. It's newsletter day here on Political Rewind. The new edition of the newsletter will be in inboxes later today. If you're not a subscriber, now's a good time to do it. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters uh, and you'll get the latest one among the things we talk about. uh, Who is the single biggest winner in this year's legislative session? Why is Donald Trump seem to be hedging his bets about David Perdue, has Marjorie Taylor Greene set out the most offensive tweet yet in her career of sending out offensive tweets? Those are just some of the things we talk about in uh, our newsletter today. Carlos Del Rio, I am totally confused about masking right now. I continue to wear masks in stores. Uh, Janice and I were in the theater twice uh, in theater seeing live plays we wore masks in audiences of 4 or 500 people and yet I go to gatherings of friends and uh, none of us are wearing our masks we're all perfectly fine walking around unmasked what should we be doing Dr Del Rio
2: You know it's 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 tough to know right it's really confusing and it's hard what i tell people is think about wearing a mask very much like you would about bringing out your umbrella. You know, if there's a lot of rain if there's a lot of, of risk of getting infected, then you're more likely to wear a mask. And, you know, Josh Weiss from, from Georgia Tech has developed a really nice uh, sort of tool in which you can say, well, you know, given how much COVID is being transmitted into your community, what are the chances that somebody sitting next to me is, you know, and, and depending on the size of the gathering, is going to be wearing a mask? The other thing is going to be, be infected and then you decide whether to wear a mask or not. The other thing that Amber said is think about ventilation, right? If I'm at a big gathering and I'm outside, it's very different than I'm, I'm in a in a small gathering, but in a small in a in a room with no ventilation, with ten people in a small room, maybe more dangerous than you know five hundred people out in a stadium. So you have got to also think about you know the number of of the, the ventilation, what's the possibility? Am I outside or am I inside? And and therefore it's it's not a simple yes no. It requires you to think about it. It requires you to really. You know, sort of get hedge your, you know, use your head to think about it. And that's really hard because most of us don't, don't think about it that way. My advice is, you know, if you think you're going to be in a situation where there's a lot of people, wear a mask. And, but make sure that you wear it properly and make sure you have a high-quality mask. Because otherwise, you might as well not wear, be wearing anything.
1: KN95, N95, are those what you would call the high-quality masks? I Assuming they're the- legitimate, authentic.
2: I think that's a pretty good high-quality mask if they're authentic. And one of the things that it's, it's important to, to remind people is, you know, is they need to fit it well. They need to fit well in your face. Mm. They cannot be flopping all over the place.
1: Um, you know, Amber, one of the things that Carlos D'Oreal just said that I is, is kind of interesting is think about whether a room is well ventilated, other factors. So here's what's interesting about, I think, mixed messaging. There's a big push right now to eliminate mask mandates on airplanes, which some people might construe as meaning, oh, well, the the pandemic isn't really that big an issue anymore. But that's not the case. We know how well ventilated airliners are. We know they recirculate air through HEPA filters. We know they take 50% of their air from outside the airplane. So it isn't as simple as saying, oh, we no longer have to worry about the pandemic. And we get a mixed message.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that, yes, airlines have certain advantages compared to other areas of mass transit, but it's also dependent on when the engines are running. Um, You know, like when you're just sitting at the terminal and if you're stuck in that airplane for, you know, 20 minutes waiting for your turn to go to the ramp, um, you are breathing each other's air during that time. And so I think... It's probably eventually going to be tied to the seatbelt light. You know, when you get to a certain altitude and um, the seatbelt light goes off, maybe we'll see a time when that's when basks can come off. But it's important to remember that the rules and regulations regarding mass transit apply to all areas of mass transit. And it's a very different situation to be on a public transit bus or train as compared to an airplane. And so I think that we still need to be thinking about community-level protections um, but we may need some more nuance eventually when it comes to some of these uh, strategies. Ellen?
3: Yeah, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I agree with the public health experts. Uh, you know, what we've been hearing pretty much all along, that what we don't know, we don't know, but we're learning. And it's about layers of protecting yourself. You know, when I, when I go out to the grocery store, most of the time I leave the mask at home. I'm fully vaccinated, boosted, and I actually got um, Omicron probably. And I, I just think that, you know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt to wear a mask if you're in, you know, a public space. If you, if you go out to, uh, you know, even the conference. I'm going to the Association of Healthcare Journalists conference, and I, I read in one of the emails that a cloth mask isn't going to be considered enough. They, they really want us to have those, you know, those, those more N95, KN95 masks. And, you know, the way I think about it, and even my, my kids who are now vaccinated when they go to school, The mask will help protect against colds, flus. There's a a stomach virus going around. So, yeah, I mean, you know, get, get your vaccinations, I think, is, again, the most important advice that we're hearing. And then just make common sense decisions about protecting yourself out in the world.
1: Uh, Last question, and I know there's not as much time as maybe we'd uh, like to have to talk about this, Dr. Del Rio, but let's say an individual has a home test, they're positive for the virus. Um, CDC says, what, five days after your first positive, you should no longer consider yourself to be contagious. And, and yet there's real questions as to whether that's accurate. How do you look at that guidance?
2: Well, well I, think, I think, first of all, Bill, um, CDC doesn't say that, that you're no longer contagious. What CDC oh. what CDC's saying is saying is if you're feeling fine, if you're not symptomatic, if you don't have a fever – you can return to work but you need to wear a mask for another five days because you could still be potentially contagious. So I think we need to be very clear what that says. And that again is what we did in healthcare. If we hadn't had that in place in healthcare during the Omicron wave, we would have not been able to take care of people. I have, you know, hundreds of, of healthcare workers who got infected during Omicron, many of them were We're pretty much mildly symptomatic. And, you know, after three, four days, they wanted to come back because they wanted to to help with work. So we need to be very clear that you're still potentially infectious, but you you can go back to your activities. But you have to wear a mask. If you're not wearing a mask, you can infect others.
1: I, oh, I hate the fact that I almost gave out misinformation. Thank you so much for correcting that, Carlos Del Rio. Uh, We're out of time. Uh, for today's show. I really appreciate what a terrific conversation uh, this has been. Ellen Eldridge, senior health reporter for uh, GPB, Amber Schmidtke of COVID Digest, and Dr. Carlos uh, Del Rio of Emory and Grady Hospital. Thank you all so much for our conversation uh, today. Um, We're going to go back to politics tomorrow, but we're going to do it in a very specific way. You've all heard about Greg Bluestein's new book, Flipped, in which he recounts the story of the 2020 election here in Georgia that turned Georgia at least temporarily blue for president and U.S. senator. We're going to have a conversation with Greg about how he wrote that book, what the more interesting stories he learned as he was researching it, and a lot more with our friend and fellow panelist Greg Bluestein uh, tomorrow. So that's it for us today. I hope you'll all uh, have a great rest of the day. I, and also, please take care, stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.